I was not uh, aware of what had happened until uh, yesterday. I got an email yesterday, or actually I found out from Dan Ingram over the weekend. But many of you had been praying for Robin Thomas, who's uh, the wife of Jeremy Thomas, who's pastor of uh, Fredericksburg Bible Church, because uh, she was uh, pregnant and due two or three weeks ago now. And uh, <clears throat> it turned out that and she'd had a lot of complications with this pregnancy, and it turned out that it, she almost died. Uh, they had the baby at home, and then there was some uh, hemorrhaging, and uh, EMTs came out and got her to the hospital, and there were just a lot of things that happened, uh, both good and bad. So it was an extremely uh, uh, life-threatening situation, but uh, God was gracious, and she was given like six units of blood. Was that right? Six units of blood and four units of platelets, so that was pretty serious. So we can uh, continue to pray for them and her recovery because Jeremy is a pastor of a church and now has five children to take care of until she recovers, including a new baby. So that's always test the mettle of a young pastor. So we can, we can pray for them. All right, before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, make sure we're ready to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that you are a very present help in times of trouble. And Father, we're thankful for the way you answered uh, so many prayers in relation to the health of Robin during this pregnancy and for her, her physical safety and also during the time of delivery and just how all the different things worked out. And Father, we continue to pray for her recovery and pray for uh, uh, Jeremy's energy as he uh, takes care of things and around the house with the kids and to, as well as handling his responsibilities as pastor. We're just thankful for the impact they're having in that uh, community there in Fredericksburg. Father, we are grateful in so many ways for the way you provide for us, but above all because you've given us your word that teaches us uh, what to think and how to think and enables us to understand reality as you've created it. And now, Father, as we continue our study, uh, this evening, as we get into some things that are difficult to understand, as Peter said in relation to many things Paul wrote, uh, we pray that uh, God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and that if we don't understand everything, that you'll just give us an opportunity to come back and, and study it further, and that over time, God the Holy Spirit will help us to understand these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last Tuesday night, as we went through Acts chapter 2, I tried to cover uh, most of the uh, section related to Peter's sermon, starting in verse 14, when Peter first stood up to answer the question that was posed to him uh, by the uh, those who witnessed the disciples speaking in languages, uh, miraculously speaking in these languages that they had neither uh, learned nor acquired, thinking that... Uh, that it must have been, uh, they must have been drunk. At least that was one uh, hypothesis. Uh, they asked the question, what did this mean? It's a loaded question, a question that indicated, uh, opened the door for Peter to interpret the event from a, the divine viewpoint so that Pentecost was not just some action that was a subjective event in the minds of a small band of Christians, but that there was a clear act of God. It was a, there was a miracle that took place. There was a supernatural intrusion into 
uh, human history in the coming of God the Holy Spirit, the sound like a uh, sound like a storm, a sound like uh, m- many waters coming. Uh, so it was heard throughout Jerusalem. It wasn't just heard in the room where they were. It was heard throughout the city. And so people were coming out. What was that noise? What happened? And then suddenly there are these Galileans who weren't, uh, uh, did not have a reputation of having a high IQ or uh, a sophisticated linguistic ability. And they were speaking in all of these different uh, Gentile languages uh, from uh, related to the areas where these Jewish, in many cases Jewish believers from an Old Testament sense, these devout men of God, had come uh, to Jerusalem to to worship. Now, one thing I want you want to point out to you is if you go back to uh, verse five. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. The focus is on the men. And I'm pointing that out because when uh, we get to the application to this evening in verse 22, after Peter quotes Joel 2, he addresses men of Israel. And the word there for men in both places is not anthropos, which is a gener- can be a generic term for human beings. It is aner, which is a term for males. He's addressing males because under Divine Institution 2 and Divine Institution 3, it is the male who is the spiritual leader in the marriage, and it's the male who's the spiritual leader in the home. In the culture at that time, because of the uh, residual impact of establishment principles, they really didn't have this concept of single people like we do today. Uh, even if, if you were a widow, if you were a young woman that was unmarried, even if you were a young man, you still lived with the family and you uh, operated within the family until you were prepared to go out on, on your own. And so the family is seen as the basic unit of society, not the individual. We don't see the individual coming in as the basic unit of society until, uh, in this country, until you get into the uh, Jeffersonian to uh, Jacksonian era in, in America. And this is the beginning of the whole women's suffragette movement that's usually not understood today, uh, why women were not given the right to vote. It wasn't because the men were a bunch of chauvinist pigs, and it wasn't because they were all a bunch of misogynists. It is because the family unit was the basic unit of society, not the individual, and the family unit had a vote, and that vote was indicated by the male who was the head of the family. And so when Peter stands up to address the uh, crowd on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't say, ladies and gentlemen, He doesn't say uh, men and women. He doesn't say boys and girls. He says men, males. He's addressing the males because if you get the males, then you get the family. That's a a secondary principle. And that's why churches really need to... One of the problems that we have had in Christianity over the past... Uh, 
2,000 years is the feminization of the church. There's a book that's been out of print for some time now uh, called The Feminization of Christianity by Leon Pottles. And it's a, he goes back and he traces this, how you have uh, throughout the history of Christianity this trend of, of, of the feminization of the church. And it starts... It really started off when you had the emphasis on celibacy because when you start emphasizing celibacy among men, men aren't men anymore. They're celibates. They're something else, and they're isolating themselves in their own communities. And then the women would isolate themselves in their own community, and you start to uh, various things that were going on within the uh, Roman Catholic Church, and he traces that down through the Middle Ages and into the Enlightenment period. And, and he spends most of his time really talking about the post-Reformation and post-Reformation period and gives lots of statistics uh, that even uh, we tend to look back with somewhat rose-colored glasses at the Reformation period, the period of colonization in America, and he gives lots of, of uh, statistics on uh, the uh, uh, gender involvement in churches. And even in the colonial period, uh, there was about a 65-35 representation women to men in the local church. And this has always been a problem. And in some areas, in, uh, in some churches in our uh, uh, culture today in America, and it's worse in Europe, it's 80-20 uh, and in some cases 90-10. Not long ago, I attended a uh, service at a black church, a you know, midweek service, and there were maybe... 150 people to 200 people in the church. And this is a particular problem in the black community. And I sat in the back and I counted uh, 20 men in the congregation. And of those 20 men, almost all, all of them were either deacons in that church or they were uh, men who were uh, being groomed for leadership as associate pastors or pastors. And the rest of the men just, just aren't there. And as a result, what happens, the same thing that happens in, uh, in the American culture as a whole, the, when you put the emphasis on women and doing things for women, now, ladies, I'm not being misogynist, I'm not dumping on women, but you put the emphasis on women, it feminizes the culture and it feminizes uh, whether the culture is business or whether the culture is the church or whether the culture is the, the whole civilization. And... Uh, uh, Pottles wrote this book, Feminization in, in uh, Christianity, and then there's another book out there, The Feminization of America, and they both argue the same principle. If you build your men to be men, to be godly men, to be uh, the kind of men that the Bible speaks of in terms of true biblical masculinity and leadership, not cultural masculinity, which is often uh, perverted by pagan notions of... Uh, uh, you know, masochism and egotism and many other factors, but building in the, the biblical view and you build to the strength of the men in the community, then the result is that it strengthens everyone in the community. But because God designed women to be responders and men to be initiators, when you build to the women in the community, then you begin to see what we'll study coming up in Romans 1 is you begin to get the role reversal and the men become feminized and the women become masculinized. And that's the exact trend that you see in pagan cultures. And I pointed that out when I taught through Judges many years ago. If you've never listened to the Judges series, I uh, uh, commend that to you. 
But if you see the, watch the trend that occurred in the Old Testament period of the judges at the very beginning, the men are strong, positive, uh, biblically sound leaders, and the women are very strong. You have Oxa, who is the daughter of Caleb and becomes the wife of Othniel. And she is very strong uh, as, a, as a person. She shows initiative. She's very polite to her father. She requests positive things for her husband, uh, land that has water on it, not just any plot of land, but we need one land with water on it. So she's, she shows a lot of very positive traits. And there's a good relationship in a proper uh, positive relationship between her husband, Othniel, who's a judge, and her uh, and this is all just indicated by nuances within the text because it's only two or three verses. But by the time you, you study the role of men and women in each episode of the Judges, going through uh, the episode with uh, Deborah and Barak and then the episode with, uh, with, with Gideon and then the episode with, uh, with his son and then the episode with Jephthah and his daughter and then to Samson, and then you get to the Levite and his concubine, uh, by the time you get to the end of the period when the uh, Jews are not uh, living any differently from the Canaanites around them, the women have become, uh, are now being abused. The men are, are completely distorted in their role in society. And uh, it, only un under the word of God can men learn to be men and women learn to be women. And that's what Ephesians uh, 5 is all about. So at the very beginning of this, <clears throat> of this passage, when Peter shifts from his Old Testament quote from Joel 2 and begins to uh, make application of that passage to his situation, I guess I better turn this, the uh, projectors on, he addresses the men of Israel and he's addressing them as males because that's the proper way to do it, number one. But number two, he's going to the, God the Holy Spirit is leading him, and God the Holy Spirit is going to build a church not on the foundation of women but on the foundation of male leadership. And if you don't have strong male leadership in a church, then you have real problems. And uh, I've been in a church like that. My first church was that way. Uh, that was... Uh, Sometimes you learn the greatest lessons in life by being in situations that aren't the best. And I had a congregation like that, and I was had a measure of wisdom for a young pastor going into an older, well-established church. I understood that if they had practices that weren't biblical, that it wasn't my job to change those in the first five years. I had to establish uh, my credentials and establish trust to begin with, but the, a question came up in the, um, in the initial <coughs> interview if I believed it was right for women to teach men, adult women, to teach adult men in a Sunday school class. And I said, no, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 prohibits that. Paul said, I don't allow women to teach or to have authority over men. It's not teaching with authority. Some people try to... Uh, make the scripture say that. I actually heard one lady uh, make that make that application, the first woman that ever spoke from the pulpit of Chafer uh, Chapel 
at Dallas Seminary in front of the faculty there, and she just tried to make this point that she was under the authority of all the faculty that was up there. And Tommy Ice, who's never let an opinion go unstated, was sitting next to me, and we were in about the third row from the front. We both just about choked when she misquoted uh, 1 Timothy 2 and said, I don't allow women to teach and have authority over men. The text doesn't say that or have authority. Women are not supposed to be teaching. My view is they're not supposed to be teaching the Scripture, but especially to males. And so um, uh, that is that was prohibited. But I told this, I answered the question. I said, that's not biblical, but y'all have been doing it that way for a long time, and I'm not going to step in there and, and change things. And they had three adult Sunday school classes, and they were all the people in the church who were over, uh, probably over 60 and some of these ladies had been, two of, the, two of them had been teaching these adult Sunday school classes for 30 years. And I knew enough that you just don't mess with that. But the very fact that I held that opinion so irritated them and so aggravated them, and it was just like a, a sliver under their skin that just festered over the next two years, that those women spread more malicious rumors about me and made it their point to get rid of me, which they did after two years. They managed to get enough of their uh, whiny, little, wimpy, effeminate husbands all upset. And uh, so they, uh, they, they managed to get, get rid of me, but it split the church because by then about half the, half the people in the church understood what the Bible said. And they, the chairman of the board stood up at, at the congregational meeting after they uh, fired me and, and uh, when they did that, he said, this church just voted the word of God out of this church, and I'm leaving. And uh, half the board and half the church left that night. So, you know, sometimes that happens, especially when people are teaching the wrong thing. So it's important to stand up for these things, and very, very few people do today because of the pressure from the feminist lobby uh, that has now become ingrained into the pew. And it's amazing the view you know, we just get things watered down so much and you get the whole boiling the frog, boiling the frog in the kettle uh, thing and the, the views that uh, many folks had 30 or 40 years ago about the role of men and women are just completely changed now, uh, even among conservatives. And there were one of the things that, that you see the pressure of the world on these things. Uh, for example, in the latter years, of the 70s under that massive double-digit inflation that came in in the Carter years, and some of you uh, remember that all too well, uh, it forced a lot of uh, young mothers into the workplace who really didn't want to go there, that went against their beliefs, but because the cost of living and everything had escalated, uh, they felt like they had no other, other choice but to go into the workplace and eventually this changed their view that uh, their priority was uh, not in the home. Their priority went shifted to the workplace. And so it really these things change culture. And when you change the role of men and women in a, mar- in a marriage, in, in, the, in the society and in a marriage, it changes the dynamics of the family. It comes back and it changes the society even more. And you start, to, you get to the point where men don't even know what it means to be uh, a, a biblical man anymore, and women don't know what what biblical uh, femininity is anymore, and it gets it gets lost and it gets all distorted by by the paganism of the culture. So we see that at the very beginning of the church, the emphasis was on the men, 
and the church is going to be built on the leadership of men, and you don't have women in a leadership role at all uh, in the early church. And all of this from that first phrase, men or males of Israel. And then Peter said, hear these words. Listen, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles. How come I'm not getting anything up on the uh, screen? Oh, there we go. Okay, it did come on. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, he starts off addressing the males, and he, listen to what he, how he starts. Jesus of Nazareth. His focus is on the humanity of Christ, that he appeared as a human being, and the reason he does this is he's going to make this connection to his physical death and physical resurrection when we get down into the quote that comes from, uh, from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And so he's, he's going to connect this to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. So he just starts off with identifying him as Jesus of Nazareth. It's not Jesus Garcia the gardener, it's Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you, to, uh, attested by God to you by miracle. So he then says he's a man, emphasizing his humanity. Not only is he full deity, which will come out in this, in this quote from the psalm, but he is fully human. So he says he's a man, and then we have the word attested. This is the Greek word apodegnumi, which means to uh, prove something. Sometimes it means to appoint something, uh, someone to some position or to appoint a particular uh, circumstance or situation. It means to demonstrate in a legal sense, demonstrating the truth of a proposition. Like when you were in, uh, when you were in about the, I don't know when they do it anymore, when you were in about the seventh or eighth grade and you were, or maybe it was a little later, and you were learning geometry and you had to write proofs, those, those logical proofs in geometry that probably most of you hated. Well, that's what, um, except for Mary Jane, she loved it. Um, that that's what this is talking about, creating a logical proof for something. It's the same sort of thing that would refer to a word that would be used for a lawyer who is presenting a logical case in the courtroom to demonstrate the guilt or innocence of the person that was charged. So it has to do with a logically structured argument or presentation uh, of facts. And so what uh, Peter is saying is that God demonstrated, he validated through miracles, signs, and wonders, he validated the claims of Jesus to be God, to be the Messiah so that he's not operating in a vacuum. It's not some sort of mysticism. He's not a man who uh, acquires deity later on or is ascribed deity later on by his followers, but whose claims are validated uh, by God through the miracles. And that was part of the reason of the miracles. Miracles weren't designed necessarily to uh, bring people to salvation because there were a lot of people who never accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, at least enough to crucify him. 
And if Jesus were to, sometimes people think, if Jesus were just here today, then my brother or my mother or my friend would, would, would be saved. And that's not true. As, um, um, as Abraham said to, uh, Lazar, uh, said to the rich man when he was in, uh, uh, in torments, and, and the rich man wanted uh, Abraham to be resurrected to go back to his brothers and tell them because he said if a, if, if a man is raised from the dead, then, then they'll believe him. And Abraham said if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe the word of God, then they won't believe a man who's raised from the dead. It's not the miracle that's convincing people. It is the self-authenticating authority of God's word. That's what Moses is saying. He says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, it doesn't matter how well-structured your argument is. It doesn't matter how many miracles are performed. It doesn't matter how, uh, how accurate the Bible teaching is. It doesn't matter how winsome your personality is. It's not dependent on that. It, it is the word of God alone that has this self-authenticating power to it. This authority comes with it because it's the Word of God. And so it comes loaded with the authority of God. And, but God validates, as I've been pointing out in Romans, this, this fits in many ways or is an application of some of the things we've been studying on Thursday night in Romans, is that you don't prove the Word of God in the sense that you go in and you go to some external authority to prove that the Bible is right. But God never operates in a vacuum. He doesn't operate in privacy. He give, always gives objective evidence that validates and verifies what he has done so that even if he does something in private with a person, as he did with, uh, with Saul after Saul was anointed, that was a very private situation, private ceremony with Samuel and Saul. But afterwards... Uh, Saul defeated the Philistines, and he uh, did two or three other things that validated his claim to be the uh, person God had chosen and anointed to be the king of, of Israel. So God always validates what he does in private with clear, objective, uh, objective events. And so these miracles, signs, and wonders that, that were performed uh, by Jesus were done so to validate his claims to deity and to be the Messiah. So Peter says this Jesus of Nazareth is a man that was that uh, was a, a, a demonstrated by God to you uh, by miracles, wonders, and signs. And we'll see these words show up again and again as we go through uh, Acts. Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Well, wait a minute. I thought these were people who weren't believers. But he's saying, as you, as you know, know, because many of them were witnesses, those from Judea at least, would have been witnesses of those miracles. Some of them were believers. So that's um, why uh, Peter says that. And then he says, God did this through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Uh, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, there's two parts to this verse. The first part has to do with 
the fact that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. Now, that brings in the whole issue of uh, God's uh, election, foreknowledge, omniscience. Uh, it brings in the whole issue of uh, determinism, free will, all of those issues which uh, I'm just going to touch on uh, briefly. I'm not going to drill down into, into that um, as much. We'll, get, we'll build on this as we go through Acts because there are subs- many subsequent passages that relate to the whole issue that we usually think of as the Calvinism versus Arminianism issue, which is really the second, second verse of the uh, Augustinian-Pelagian uh, debate that uh, took place uh, several centuri- centuries earlier. That's the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse has to do with, and that half also has to do with God's oversight of the events. The second half has to do with the human responsibility. But in that, he is directly accusing those before him, even though they weren't part of the Sanhedrin and they weren't part of the uh, group that made the decision, nevertheless, as being a part of Israel and part of uh, the nation that is represented by those leadership that leadership, they bore a measure of responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that, this, that the Jews are to blame for the crucifixion. The whole human race is to blame for the, for the crucifixion. But these, this is the generation they made certain decisions, and certain of them made certain decisions to arrest Jesus and to bring him before Pilate, and then it was the Romans uh, that crucified him. But they did this in an illegal manner. The trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the way in which he was arrested, the way he was, the way in which he was taken, the lack of witnesses. Uh, there are about seven different uh, things that were done in the course of the trials of Jesus uh, that were in complete violation of the uh, code that uh, the Jews operated on, that later was codified into the Mishnah. And violated all of those all of those things. Jesus' trial was completely illegal according to the Mosaic law. Nevertheless, they had their agenda, and they just like politicians today, they weren't about to let something like the law stand in their way. And so that's why Peter says that they were taken by lawless hands. They were in violation of the Mosaic law in the trial. And they crucified him and put him to death. Now it doesn't stop there because he goes on to talk about the resurrection, but we don't have we're not going to get anywhere close to that this week. Now in verse twenty this verse twenty three, we have these two words that we need to spend a little time uh, discussing. The first is the word uh, the phrase determined purpose. And the second is the word foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. Just exactly what do these words describe? Well, the <clears throat> phrase determined purpose is actually comprised of two different Greek words. Uh, the first word is horizo. That's the verb there that's translated uh, determined. And the second word is boule, which is the word that's translated uh, purpose. It usually means will, boulemize the verb to will or to desire something. Uh, so it has to do with a, uh, the, the, a determination or a planning of, of a specific course of action. So it says that Jesus being delivered by the determined uh, plan, uh, plan of God, 
the determined will of God, the determined purpose of God, the specific plan of God, uh, various ways in which you can get, that, get, get translate that, but it has to do with the fact that God the Father in eternity past had a specific plan that was being fulfilled in and by the crucifixion of Christ. So this, uh, the question then is, how does this relate to the question that is often asked about election and predestination and the foreknowledge of God? Well, I want to take you through several, uh, several passages, and we're going to uh, look at just some of the ways in which this word is used. It's not used that many times. is not used that many times, uh, that many times in Scripture. Now, another way in which uh, this could be translated, in fact, the New English Bible translates it this way, the deliberate or intentional will and plan of God. So that is emphasizing that this was God's intent. It's not just an accident. It's just something that uh, didn't contradict God's plan. It was something that God intended. Uh, It doesn't go beyond that. So... Let's just look at a couple of other places where this word is used. Luke 22:22, we read, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, Jesus is speaking here, and this is at the time of the Last Supper, and it's in reference to the fact that uh, Judas is about to leave and go and betray him. And so Jesus says, Truly the Son of Man, referring to himself, goes as it has been determined. So who, who does the determination here? It's God. He's not stated as such, but it's a passive form of the verb. It is God who does the determination. And what is it that's being determined? The Son of Man's salvation? Oh, no, it's not a salvation passage, is it? No, it's talking about the deter- God's plan that he would be betrayed and that he would go to the cross. And so Jesus says, Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined or as it has been planned or as God intended. That's, that's what is coming across here. Another verse later on in Acts is Acts 10.42. And this is um, Peter speaking to Cornelius. It says, And he commanded us, that is, the Lord commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So here we have the New King James Version translating it, Orizzo translating it, or, or ordained, but it's the same word who, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he who was uh, the intended one, we might say, making it a noun, uh, who was uh, uh, specified, uh, who was uh, chosen in a sense, not in an election sense, but the one who was uh, intent, who got, intended by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And so it's the person who does the determination, again, is God. Uh, the determination is that Jesus, as the Messiah, would be the judge of the living and the dead, that as a result of his uh, ascension to the Father, and when he returns as the Son of Man, he would be the judge of the living and the dead. The next verse is also in Acts, Acts eleven twenty nine. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now, this is a good verse to use because God's not the one making the choice here, making the plan. It's the disciples. And the disciples, 
made, were making a plan. They had a problem in front of them, and that was that there was a famine now in Judea. They had uh, collected some money to send as relief to those believers in uh, Judea so they would be able to find food and be able to feed themselves. And so they determined, notice uh, just as an aside there in terms of giving, each according to his ability. There was not a set number in the New Testament. It's not everyone gave 10%. It's according to their ability, according to their volition. But the disciples are the ones who make the decision. They have a plan, and they're going to execute the plan. And that's, that's the point of this verb. It is simply that God, as the sovereign of the universe, the creator God, has a plan of salvation, and he has sent his son to fulfill that plan and what Jesus did at the cross was not an accident. It's what God, uh, God intended. So this verse helps us understand that word a little more. Acts 17.26. Uh, this is Paul speaking to uh, the Athenians. And this is a great verse for divine institution number four and nationalism and nas- national distinctions and uh, distinctions between uh, ethnic groups and maintaining borders and none of this uh, world without borders nonsense we hear today uh, and the internationalism. God has made from one blood, that is from Adam through Noah, because no, we all came from Noah. Nobody here came from uh, Cain. Uh, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined, once again, it's God who makes the determination. He has determined their pre-appointed times. As the overseer of history, God determines the rise and the fall of nations. That's what we see in Daniel's visions and Daniel's dreams, the rise and the fall of nations and empires. And they have a time to rise and a time to fall. And, um, and God establishes the boundaries of their dwellings. So God establishes the boundaries and the, the national boundaries and the, those national uh, distinctions. But once again, it's God who has a plan, has an intention, and establishes that within the realm of his authority. But he's not violating anybody's volition in relation to their salvation or eternal status. Acts 17.31, because he has appointed a day, there's our word again, Herodzo, appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he, ha- or excuse me, here's the word, he's appointed a day on which he is He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this all by raising him from the dead. So once again, God had a plan for Jesus. Jesus' uh, death on the cross was fulfilling uh, that particular plan. Now, the next word, which is the word that where we get much more discussion, much more debate, is the word foreknowledge. Now, there are two sides to this debate. There is one side that is the uh, Calvinist-slash-determinist side. And the basic Calvinist position is that foreknowledge is not simply knowing something ahead of time, which is also described by the word prescience, but that foreknowledge has to do with establishing a relationship ahead of time. And the way they will get to that conclusion is they will take the word, which is prognosco, or, or here it's uh, prognosis, 
which is where we get our word uh, prognosis. For example, you go to the uh, doctor and he says you have cancer. You say, well, what's the prognosis? What's going to happen? So the foreknowledge of God here has to do with uh, simply knowing what will happen uh, uh, ahead of time. But they take the for off, they take the pro off, and they go back to knowing. And they'll, they'll go back and they say, well, the first couple of times we run into the word knowing in Scripture... It, for example, back in, um, back in Genesis, Adam knew Eve. Now, that doesn't mean that he had an academic acquaintance with her. And as he looked across the uh, classroom there in the garden, he said, that's Eve over there. It had to do with an intimate knowledge and understanding of someone. And so they import that. This is, uh, this is a logical fallacy in, in etymological studies. They import that meaning, which is a secondary meaning to gnosis. They import that secondary meaning as a primary meaning to every, uh, try to import it to every other use of the word so that what they would say is in the foreknowledge of God, God is determining a relationship ahead of time. And that is how, that is how they build to the Calvinist doctrine of election. But that is a, what, what uh, is called by uh, <clears throat> people who study semantics and lexicographers as illegitimate totality transfer. Words have primary core meanings, and then they pick up secondary nuances. And when you take a secondary nuance of a word in one passage and try to make that the core meaning and then transfer that over to another passage, that's an illegitimate totality transfer. You've taken the total meaning over here and illegitimately moved it over here and ignored just the core meaning uh, of the word. And the core meaning of the word is just, is just knowledge. And if you, uh, what I've listed there, uh, the, those abbreviations are abbreviations from some of the major Greek lexicons. For example, uh, the first one, bag D, that's the, Arndt and, the old Arndt and Gingrich dictionary that's been uh, come through about three or four editions uh, uh, in the last 30, 30 years. And that stands for Bauer, Arndt, who was the original ger- German who did the original edition. Arndt and Gingrich, who are Americans, and then Danker's revision, uh, defines it's, it means foreknowledge, but he doesn't explain what that means, which I think is a flaw at times in these dictionaries. Or it means to predetermine, and he doesn't explain what that means. A better dictionary, in many ways, because it also covers the biblical Koine text, is the used to be the Liddell Scott text, but it's been updated and revised by a man named Jones. So now it's called the Liddell Scott Jones LSJ, and the LSJ states that the basic meaning. Uh, is to know, perceive, learn, or understand something beforehand or to make a prediction. It is to know something ahead of time. Uh, It's the idea in some passages of judging beforehand, uh, but but this judging ahead of time is grounded in knowledge ahead of time, prescience. Moulton and Milligan is the classic dictionary related to uh, the use of Greek, at the Koine Greek in the, um, uh, in the uh, uh, various uh, uh, non-biblical texts in the papyri. And it gives the meaning as to foreknow, to know something previously. And then the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, edited by Colin Brown, 
simply gives the definition is to know beforehand, to know something in advance. Now, those are that's what the lexicons say, and they tend to be in agreement on this unless they've been influenced by preconceived notions coming out of a, of a Reformed theology. And then you get this. I, I found this so interesting in one commentary. Douglas Moo is a new t- head of the New Testament department now, I believe, at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's written a large, massive commentary on Romans. Actually, he's written two or three on Romans. And he says, For no, as its etymology in both Greek and English suggests, usually means to know ahead of time. See Acts 26.5, where Paul says that the Jews knew before now for a long time if they wished to testify that I had lived according to the strictest party of our religion. This being the commonest meaning of the verb, it is not surprising that many interpreters think it must mean this here also. It's the most And like many Calvinist commentators, they say this is the common meaning of the word, but it, we really can't use that in the New Testament. So we have to go through some uh, gymnastics, semantic gymnastics, in order to make it mean uh, something else. Thomas Schreiner, who is another major scholar today, teaches at the Southern, uh, it's the Baptist Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, writes in his massive commentary on Romans that some have argued that the verb proegno, uh, <coughs> meaning he foreknew, here should be defined only in terms of God's foreknowledge, by which he means at that point prescience. That is that God predestined to salvation those whom he saw in advance would choose to be part of his redeemed community. Schreiner then says, admits this fits with Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17 where the verb prognoskane clearly means to know beforehand. According to this understanding, predestination is not ultimately based on God's decision to save some. Such an interpretation is attractive in that it forestalls the impression that God arbitrarily saves some and not others. Now, that's an important word, that word arbitrarily, because when you get to the question of election, it's very clear in Scripture that God chose. It's a um, present active indicative verb. God is a subject to the verb. He chose who would be saved. It doesn't tell you what the basis was for that choice. Now, in, in Calvinism, you read many of the authors, God just chose. It's arbitrary. Nothing is said, because nothing is said in Scripture as to what the basis was for God's choice. They infer that it's just arbitrary. God chooses some, and he passes over others, or in more extreme forms, he chooses some to salvation, and others he selects for damnation. But this is, um, this is the, the view on foreknowledge, so it becomes foundational to understanding any discussion later on related to uh, predestination or, or election. Now, let's look at a couple of these verses that are where this word is used. And we'll see how how it um, how it indicates always indicates knowledge ahead of time. It doesn't indicate a predetermination. It, it's not a synonym for choice. It's not a synonym for uh, God having an, his, putting his elective love on people. It simply means God knew something ahead of time. So in Acts twenty six five, 
Paul says, they knew me, referring to the Jews, they knew me from the first. There's the word, prognosco. They knew me ahead of time. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now, there's a couple of things that we should note here in the way the word is used in this sentence by Paul. First of all, prognosco here simply refers to knowledge. It doesn't refer to any kind of relationship. doesn't refer to any kind of choice, and it doesn't indicate any kind of intimacy between uh, those uh, who were Pharisees who now would be a give their testimony against Paul. He just said they, they knew me beforehand. Uh, and whether that, uh, and that just is they, they're aware of who he was and his background. Second, there is a chronology here that indicates that it has to do with time, knowing something before. And he says they knew me from the first or from the youth, from the beginning, um, uh, beforehand. Third, the most significant uh, thing that we see here in terms of the syntax is that the object of the verb is me. They knew me. Uh, they, they knew me beforehand. Uh, it's, and the idea is they knew something about Paul. They knew how he lived. It's not talking about a personal relationship with Paul. It's, not t- it's talking about the fact that they knew that he lived according to the strict sect of their religion. So uh, prognosco doesn't mean know somebody personally, but to know something about someone. Now, that's important because when they discussion with election and foreknowledge, Calvinists will say, well, it means to know you personally. It's a per- that, that personal elective love, the elective choice of God. It's not knowing something about you. It's knowing you. But here it's clearly used in the sense of knowing something about Paul uh, beforehand. Another passage is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, in, who indeed foreknew Jesus. He says, he indeed, that is, Jesus indeed was foreknown, that is, known ahead of time, before the foundation of the world. He's saying the same thing here that, that Peter, that, I mean, Peter's saying the same thing in both places. He's saying this wasn't an accident. This was God's plan for Jesus of Nazareth to, to die on the cross. He said, he indeed was foreknown, uh, pre- known ahead of time before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times before you. Notice the contrast. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifest in these last times. So there's a, a comparison going on that he's foreknown indicates previous knowledge uh, before the world was created, but he is manifest uh, he is manifest now in these particular times. So again, it has that idea of prescience, knowing something ahead of time. In 2 Peter 3.17, uh, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, now everybody admits this, this means prescience. This is just knowing something before it happens. Uh, you, you, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. The... Um, um, Acts passage and this passage are both passages that indicate that um, the Acts 26.5 are both admitted by one and all that it's just knowledge ahead of time. 
Then we have 1 Peter 1, 2, which is one many people go to uh, right off the bat, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So it's here we get into a question, what does it mean elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? And the preposition that is used here is the uh, Greek preposition kata, which gives the ground or reason for an action. And the action is the election of those by the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. But it's on the basis of the foreknowledge of God the Father. So now we have to address this question, what exactly is this foreknowledge? So I'm going to, last few minutes here, I'm going to put this chart up on the board. I thought about drawing a circle to represent the omniscience of God, but that would indicate that the omniscience of God was finite, and it's not. So the whole slide going off into infinity in every direction represents the omniscience of God, and we're just looking at a, at a slice of it. God's omniscience means that he has infinite knowledge. Now think about infinity for a minute. That means that, that you, we will, as finite human beings, when we have spent a billion years listening to God teach us, we will still be learning things we never dreamed of and we haven't even started. Kind of reminds you of that last verse in Amazing Grace. He has infinite knowledge. It, it, never, it, it has no limits. So let's make some observations about it. God knows all that can be known. Not all that can be known from your little tiny insect creaturely framework, but all that can be known within the infinite imagination and knowledge of God. He knows it all, all the what is. You sit around, you say, what would have happened if, if Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie had just beaten the Mexicans at the Alamo? What would have happened if, if uh, Sam Houston had lost? What would have happened since today's the anniversary of the start of the, uh, uh, the War of Northern Aggression? What would have happened if the South had won? That was always a favorite one. I think some, several people have written books along that line. What would have happened... God can answer all that. What would have happened if you had married each one of those uh, girlfriends or boyfriends that you had in high school, college, all the way up the line? What would have happened if you had lived in California, if you'd gone to the college you wanted to go to instead of the one you, your, your parents wanted you to go to? God knows all of that. He knows all the extrapolations into infinity, and he can tell you all of the what-ifs. That'll blow you. You think about that for a while. God, and then we have to realize that God's knowledge never increases, it never diminishes, and it never changes. God doesn't learn anything. Tomorrow you will learn a lot of things, and things will happen to you perhaps tomorrow or next week or next year that surprise and shock, dismay, and amaze you. But it doesn't surprise God at all. Nothing ever does. He knows it all. Nothing is new to him. He has known it. Always, always, times always. God's knowledge never increases, diminishes, or changes. Third, God knows all things immediately. He didn't go to school. 
He doesn't have a quadruple doctorate. He knew everything. He has always known everything immediately and directly and intuitively, although it's, that's not even an adequate word. Uh, he knows everything along with all of their uh, relations and causes. There's no temporal nature to divine knowledge. He doesn't have a before and after within his understanding of things. He doesn't know something before he knows something else. He didn't know about your parents before he knew about you. He knew about you and your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren at the same instant that he knew about your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, and he knew all of that forever. Fourth, God's knowledge does not determine what will or will not be. This is just his omniscience. It doesn't determine what will or will not be. He just knows what might be as well as what will be. And then last, God's knowledge of what will actually happen is a subset of all that he knows. So he has this infinite knowledge of all the what-ifs, all the maybes, as the philosophers say, all the counterfactuals. And then he knows what will be, represented by the circle there, although the circle is probably, I should have made that much, much smaller, except you couldn't have read divine knowledge of what will be if I had made it small. So that is, the knowledge of what will be is a subset of all the knowledge that God has. Now, we, we think about that. When we think about his foreknowledge, his foreknowledge relates to what will be. But he knows everything else. But he's still not causing it in a, in a sense that he causes it in a moral, uh, ethical sense. Now, here's another chart. I tried to express this in terms of the atemporal nature of God's knowledge. The little purple triangle with the theta in it is for Thaos, that's God. And the two arrows going out to the left and the right represent the scope of his omniscience. He's above the horizontal line that describes from eternity to eternity. Above that line, it's timeless eternity. There's no before or after. And so in one nanosecond, God knows everything that happens in the creation. Everything. He perceives it instantly. He knew it instantly. There's no beginning. There's no after. There's no uh, learning, acquisition, anything. He just immediately perceives everything at one instant. Now, all of that has to go into our understanding of what, what foreknowledge means. And so foreknowledge basically means that God knows beforehand what is, what is going to happen and what he determines will happen. But, he, but then we get it. When, as soon as we say the word determination, we introduce this idea of causation. But it's at the divine level, which is above that line. It's not the same as below that line. And the problem you get into with, uh, with deterministic Calvinism and other uh, fatalistic uh, philosophies and theologies is that they try to make the causation at the divine level the same as the causation at the creaturely level. And as soon as you do that, you've got real problems because God's knowledge is not like our knowledge for his thinking is far, far above ours and categorically different from ours. So we can't, uh, we can't draw that, uh, that comparison 
uh, between the two. Now, we're already out of time, so next time I want to come back. We'll review this just a little bit. I want to go through some of the passages, some of the other passages that talk about the foreknowledge uh, of God, just a couple of more, because what this indicates is that that God is... Okay, I did have a couple of more things. Okay, we'll hit a couple more. God's knowledge includes all events, choices, actions, thoughts, actual and potential. Okay? Second... God's decision of what will be is usually presented as A, he determines every detail of what will take place. That's determinism. You have religious determinism and you have materialistic determinism. But basically God determines every minutia that will take place or he determines what will be on the basis of the decision of the creature. Now, if God's decisions are based on the decision of the creature, then God's just in reaction to what creatures decide. He's not really God. He's not leading. He's just reacting to search. We have so many obvious examples of that right now. I'm not going to insult your intelligence by going there. Leadership means that you're taking the initiative. But if God's knowledge is in response to what the creature does, then you have a problem with the creature getting saved by, by his works. God chooses him because of what he does. Scripture never says that. Scripture says we're saved through faith, not because of faith. That's very important. So usually what you set up is these two false opposites. Either God determines everything or the creature determines everything. But see, God in his sovereignty determines that man has volition in certain areas and he doesn't have volition in other areas. Not one person here could choose when they were born or what color hair they were going to have or what kind of body they were going to have or anything like that. You know, there's some decisions you just can't make. Now, the third point I want to make here is that Scripture does not inform us why God chose Abraham to be the one he would work through and not, for example, say Job, who lived about the same time. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a reason. It just means God didn't tell us what the reason was. But to say that he doesn't include in his, in the reason he makes that choice, information from his foreknowledge is to, is to end up saying God just completely arbitrary. He just chose Abraham for no reason whatsoever. Or did he choose him on the basis of his foreknowledge that things that he knew uh, would take place in history? So you're left with two options. Either God chose arbitrarily or he included within his choice, with the reason he makes a choice, all that he knew. Uh, but to include his uh, omniscience and the, what he knows as a part of his decision-making doesn't make the man's decision causative. It doesn't mean God's the, the man's really the horse pulling the cart without a driver. Especially if some decisions are non-meritorious. And it's interesting to watch what's happening in theology because some of the new perspectives on Paul people, the N.T. Uh, Wrights and some others are coming along and saying, that uh, 
uh, imputation of righteousness is a legal fiction. You're saved on the basis of, of your righteousness. But when you're obedient to Scripture, it's a non-meritorious obedience. Somebody slips non-meritorious in lots of different places without necessarily using the word. And the place it belongs is on faith. Faith is non-meritorious. So when God takes into account who would believe and who would not believe, he's not letting our choice become the cause of his choice. It is the means of his choice, and it is a non-meritorious factor. And that's why we end up with the gospel of grace. Now, I know a lot of people are going to listen to that on the tape five or six times to figure that out. So I'll come back. We'll cover it a little more to clarify things with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to think them through and help us to understand them. And sometimes it's just too difficult. We just, have, we just take it by faith that, that uh, you're in charge, but it doesn't violate anyone's volition. And uh, people uh, have an honest ability fair ability to either trust you or not, trust Jesus or not, and on the basis of their choice, they're either uh, stay in condemnation or they are justified and saved forever. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things in Christ's name. Amen.